I'm Frank Rossin, and from the TurfNet Radio Network, this is Frankly Speaking. I had a chance to catch up with Jim Wagner, Pants Design, while he was on site during the reconstruction, renovation, restoration at Marion Golf Club outside of Philadelphia. Jim's been a guest on Frankly Speaking in the past and with Hans Design for the last 22 of 25 years of its existence, leading up the Caveman Group. (laughs) So easy, a caveman can do it, and we're going to have that chat with Jim in a minute. So I had the pleasure of working with Jim and Gil on a number of projects, notably the Olympic Golf Course in Rio, and here's that conversation with Jim Wagner at Marion Golf Club. Uh, Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Dr. Frank, what's happening today? (laughs) It's good to have you back. So you have some, I understand since the last time you were on, you've uh, built a little fan base, a little groupie base I that are appealing to here? For sure, for sure. Last time I was on, I forget, it was probably about a year and a half ago or so, uh, I found out I had a fan club, believe it or not. And the fan club, which is headed up by Russ Myers, <laughs> Russ was, uh, he was kind of upset, Frank, that you kept cutting me off. Oh. Every time I was going to say something, you would jump in and cut off what I was what I was about to say. That's right. That's right. Because it's my show. I know. I know. And, and if you you're, you're like the talk, you're like the Howard you're the Howard Stern of uh, Turfnet. Oh God! Please don't say that. <laughs> anyway, um, we are gonna this. You could see where this conversation could likely go, folks, uh, as we get into it. And I'll add my uh, praise to Russ and his fine work. Uh, a little bit on your design out at uh, Los Angeles Country Club, right? You were working with Russ Myers out there, weren't you? We did. We actually worked with Russ when he was at L.A. on the North Golf Course. Mm-hmm. He implemented the design construction phase on the North Golf Course, and then he did all the planning for the South Golf Course. And lo and behold, about a month or so into the project on the South Golf Course, Russ headed back to Southern Hills. Oh, boy. And, and that's where he is now today. We that's where he is today, and now with Russ, we are doing it, or we've completed a master plan, and we are ready to go to construction, and we will start uh, renovating Southern Hills on August 1st. So Russ is in for a treat. Again, I guess we're in for the treat, having <laughs> well, a work with Russ. <laughs> well, it's going to be, you're going down there in the teeth of the growing season, and where you are right now, up at Marion Golf Club, you're working with uh, another well-known uh, golf course superintendent who returned to some interesting familial roots, you would say, uh, at Marion. And uh, talk a little bit about the guy you're working with right now. Yes, we were working with uh, Paul Atchell. Uh I've known Paul for about 25 years. I actually worked with Paul and Paul's dad uh, many moons ago when I first got started in this industry down at Wilmington Country Club. So Paul has returned to Marion. You know, basically it's full circle with us at Marion. We we were doing a little bit of stuff here with Paul, whatever that was, about 20 years ago when he was here for his first stint. And he's back again. And we just uh, began a complete renovation of the famed East Golf Course. So we're excited. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful golf course, as we all know, very historic. And uh, we're excited about being here. We're excited about working with Paul. Okay. And it's going to be a great project. Well, and I got to tell you, where I'm going with this is, you know, nothing to do with these wonderful properties, but rather uh, the wonderful professionals that I'll add, you know, Rhett Baker, Jeff Carlson, you know, just the ones I've worked with uh, over the years. Neil Cleverly now and, uh, you know, and now that he's again working with us in Thailand, 
How important is the superintendent uh, to your work when you come in and either build a new place um, or retrofit an existing place like you're doing at Marion now? Well, I mean, I mean, it's pretty obvious, Frank. I mean, they are uh, the key to the entire project. Uh, I mean, you know, and we're very, very fortunate. The guys that we've worked with, you know, Steve Rabideau and, and oh, Rod. Yes, and Paul, how do I forget my man, Steve? Yeah, you can't forget Steve. Come on. And the list just goes on and on <laughs> and on. Right. And we've been very fortunate. But, I mean, they, they, they make a break to the project, obviously. But really what the key to those guys is, and all these guys that, that we've mentioned and everybody we've been fortunate to work with, they all, have, they all have the mindset of, and it works well with us, is, hey, whatever you guys want, we're going to make it happen. You know, there's no real preconceived notions mm-hmm. from a design standpoint, and they're up for the challenge. And, and that's what makes all those guys so great is, you know, we, we lay out the design, we work with, you know, old aerial photography, work with committees, and then when it comes time for the implementation, you know, these guys are the best at it because of their abilities, for one, but two, the mental approach, you know, and, and that's the key, the yes. challenge. They like taking on the challenge. That's right. And the reason I'm interrupting, in case Russ is listening, why I'm interrupting you, <laughs> uh, the reason for my interrupting of you now is the broader picture here because yeah. a couple of things we've talked about this season on Frankly Speaking with Steve Mona from the World Golf Foundation, Jim Copenhaver from Pelusa Golf in Chicago, is the amount of money that's beginning to flow into infrastructure of golf courses, the redesign of a whole, maybe uh, for stormwater, a lot going on in Chicago, uh, the Chicagoland area for redoing golf courses to accommodate the stormwater needs of the growing urban communities, the the golf resorts that are being built that you guys ha- have been part of, the renovations for either drainage or, hey, maybe we got to fix this hole because it doesn't fit with the way people play nowadays. There's going to be a lot of money that these people are telling us is going to continue to flow into these areas. I'm trying to get you to talk about, you know, getting superintendents ready when this comes to your property developing that mindset because this is going to be coming to more and more facilities as this investment money moves into it. So I want to make sure that there's, you know, that mindset that you're talking about superintendents know what they're in for, but more importantly, how do they make that role possible from the get go? Right. You tell them as soon as the conversations are underway, they need to be at the table, right? They definitely need to be at the table as soon as possible. And they need to be a part of the discussion, and they, they need to be a part of the discussion so it allows them to take ownership in everything that's being done on the property. It's a huge thing. We can almost tell pretty early on in a project of the degree of success the project will have just through the enthusiasm of the superintendent. It's a big thing. So everybody out there listening, I mean, if they're involved from the get-go, they're going to be more enthusiastic, and they're going to be able to weigh in on what they need. Right. And it's important for committee people to be able to understand that as well. Right. These guys are, are professionals. They know. They're the ones that are out there uh, I mean, seven days a week, 10 hours a day. They know how that property functions. So they definitely need to be a part of the conversation from the get-go. And you know, a lot of their needs need to be uh, implemented. Now, whether it's implemented during the construction process or it's part of a longer, long out, you know, longer phase, but it needs to be in the planning for sure. So, so in, in many ways, um, in many ways, you really want them to give you input early on for the things that 
um, you've drawn on paper and then try to figure out how they're going to work. I mean, I remember uh, we had a student from Cornell, uh, Jordan Gary, down with you at Wingfoot with Steve yeah, building yeah. some of those greens. And Steve's cowboy. Right, yeah, cowboy. And we're there um, sort of working through scanning these greens now. That was sort of a leading edge of the way they're scanning these surfaces now to redo them. But there were always issues. You know, there's one thing when you do a restoration, Jim, you're maybe trying to capture what was there originally and bring it back more, more archaeological work uh, than you might be creative because you're just creating. But I've also been involved with you where you guys are creating from scratch and the way you do things. And how often do you and Gil uh, draw something where the superintendent looks at it and says, yeah. I don't know, not sure about that. Really, uh, two sprinkler heads in the middle of a green. Uh, you know, <laughs> how do you guys work through that balance of where you want to, you know, push the limits of being creative and you know not being bound? You know, I've built number courses with you. Now we haven't yet to build a USGA green. So just to make sure everybody understands when when I say creative, what I'm talking about. What happens when you? get outside uh, maybe some superintendent's comfort level. Um, how do you guys resolve some of that stuff? It's definitely part of it, Frank. I mean, from a design aspect, uh, you know, the way we work is our designs, what's on paper is just really a guide, a tool for us to get into the ground. And then since we, uh, we do a majority of our own shaping, whether it's myself or Gil or all the caveman guys that we have working with us, you know, you've got to meet those guys and how talented they yes, are, Yes, is that we want stuff to develop in the field. You know, the third dimension, being there, living it, and experiencing it, is really how you get the most out of the design standpoint. From that aspect, and I hate to say this, is we almost don't really worry about what the superintendent thinks or feels about the design and how it comes together, whether it's really tight to the green and they're going to have trouble turning mowers or whatever the breakdown may be, or if we're allowing too much runoff to go into a bunker. I mean, we're trying to create the, be the best we can from an interest strategy and all that, those good buzzwords that go into the architecture uh, and the feel of everything. But uh, it comes down to the nuts and bolts where we really have to take the superintendent's uh, you know, job and thought process, their experiences, their knowledge, their training uh, as part of the whole process because they're the ones that know, you know, and you got that. I mean, we had a case, and we can blame Rhett Baker for this down to the hoopy, <laughs> but, you know, we wanted large greens, and we, we had a, a pretty good-sized uh, cluster of large greens down at the Hoopy Match Club, and, you know, we come back after the irrigation's been laid out, which we're, we're not really part of other than just the original concept, and we find an irrigation head in the middle of the green, which to us was totally unacceptable. <laughs> okay. We, uh, we, 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 had, we had to give, you know, Rhett his say and his due in that because he's the one that has to maintain it. Now, he came back since and said it was a bad idea to put the head in the middle of the green and he doesn't think he needs it. But we have to give the superintendents the freedom on, on things of that nature, you know, the mix, what's the breakdown of the mix, the sands, you know, the top dressing and all that other stuff that kind of goes into some of the construction aspects. But yeah. as far as the design goes, Frank, we, we tend not to really worry about how they feel. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, you know what I'm no. saying? Yeah, well, I know exactly what you're saying, and I'm sure every superintendent who's listening to this you know, would like to crawl through and see if they could punch you in the face right now. Um, because, yeah, I know. I get that. I get that. <laughs> but, but I do think what's important, and what I'm getting at is this, you know, and especially since you mentioned Rhett, because I, like you, spent a lot of time with Rhett. 
uh, talking about this. And if he now he knows he's stuck in perpetuity with us yakking about him. But I can yep. tell you in his case, you know, one of the th- you know, first of all, you're growing grass on 200 feet, we think, of straight, fine <laughs> sand. All right. Yep. J- just like in Rio. So not a lot of people are used to those sort of sand belt conditions. You want to make sure that the only thing that's going to kill you in that kind of a sand is not having enough water. And you certainly don't want to make that mistake on a putting surface where the requirements, especially the way you guys do the surrounds, being shaved and creative, right, for, for the client. Yep. Um, you know, it's a custom-built golf course. So to, to make sure that everybody who's listening doesn't think you are complete uh, jerks about this, I do think you push – a little bit like, okay, I'm not used to that. But on the other hand, I think in some cases, maybe down at the match club specifically, I don't know that beyond maintenance traffic, there's a lot of necessarily uh, stress from golf traffic other than maybe a few times of the year. So traffic uh, is the issue down there. And I have seen you work really well accommodating the needs uh, the most you can. But what I want to get to before we wrap up this segment, Jim, is this. The other part of the equation is the owner or the golfers, right? I've seen you work with uh, individual owners, primarily uh, construction people, when we built the project I've worked with you on. But, of course, you've also worked like at Wingfoot or or at the – I think it was the Creek Club uh, on Long Island, right? Uh, You worked with the membership. So how does that relationship between you and Gil and the membership – or do you let just Jim handle that because you you would generally aggravate the customers too much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right about that. Uh, so the majority of the merits the plan and the design uh, portion of the job, you know, it skills relationship with the committees which and the members of the club, which has become really big for us. You know, we're, we're a, we really want to work with good people at, at good clubs. Uh, and, and that's what's important to us. The, you know, the handshake agreements and, you know, working in, in a friendly environment is, is really what the, the, everything's all about. That's how you're going to get the best product. But so Gil kind of handles everything through the master plan phasing. And then when we get into the construction phase and the, the members and the committees, really, it's really the committees that come out. And then that's kind of where my relationship you know, uh, kind of comes into play as far as the nuts and bolts and, and what's going on out you, in the construction so and the field you, and all that you, kind of So stuff. do you find salient differences when you have a single owner versus um, when you have the committee structure, right? Because those people you're meeting well, with, are still a committee, whereas yeah. generally when it's an owner, it's up to a single person. Do you see any well, differences when it's, I mean, maybe you screen it all out because you only work with certain clubs that sort of, okay, here's how we work and you guys adapt to it. And this is what we're going to do. Well, what tends to happen, uh, Frank, uh, really with the exception of, uh, of Trump is that, uh, <laughs> single owners are generally new designs in the sense that, you know, the single owners are coming in, they're the ones that are buying the land and, and it's an original hand design, Gil Hans design. Committees are more on the renovation end of everything. And then from the committee standpoint, you know, they're representing, uh, you know, 300 or, or plus members. So there's expectations of the members uh, and the committees need to be informed. They need to know the thought process and why we're doing stuff, because, you know, as soon as they go back into the clubhouse, uh, there's going to be members that are going to be asking them questions mm-hmm. about how the process is going. Mm-hmm. They notice this or that or mm-hmm. the other thing. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, the committee members need to be informed of that. Okay. So really, the, the whole thing comes down to committees is, is really, you know, it's probably a little bit more detail in what you're doing. So they're informed so they can answer any questions that are being uh, given to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a communication thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the new owner, you can, you can you know, you don't have to be as detail-oriented. You can just say, like, you know, hey, we, we wanted to move these, these bunkers from this location just, you know, because of various aspects of the design or thought process. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with committees, you need to just be a little bit more detailed. Most of the individual owners are hiring us because they like the way we work in the field and, and we're shaping and we want to take advantages of what's in the ground and they understand that the design is just a template of something to work off of. Uh, whereas committees, and you've done the archaeological, you know, dig, we'll call it, or the archaeology, like you said earlier in the uh, in the broadcast here, Frank, that, that, that's the right word because you're going back. You're going looking at old aerials and photography and a bunker maybe in a certain location that you're trying to put back in. And if in the field you feel it's in the wrong spot or needs to be tweaked or whatever, then you, know, you just have to make the committees aware of the reasons why you wanted to do that because it's it's in a plan form, it's on paper. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to get more questions. Yeah. So it really comes down to the difference between new original design, That's Frank, right. and renovation work. Well, and and uh, and of course it's the opposite of all that when uh, our current president Trump uh, is involved. <laughs> Uh, in the yeah, process. Well, everything's yeah. the opposite, right? And, so, and we are just getting started here on Frankly Speaking. We're going to leave it right with that, Jim. We'll be back after a message from our sponsors. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here in the heart of central New York, joined by my pal Jim Wagner of Hans Golf Design in the heart of the main line at Marion Golf Club outside of Philadelphia in the process, I understand, Jim, of taking uh, in some mix today. So I'm assuming you're going the traditional route uh, and building yourself a bunch of USGA greens down there at Marion. Yes? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And the renovation stuff, Frank, as you are kind of chatting about earlier, doesn't give you as much freedom to be able to you know, do the sand or the native sand type greens that, you know, we've worked on with yourself in Hoopi and what we're working on in Thailand and places of that nature. But we are, we are doing uh, USGA greens and uh, we're using precision air as well. Beautiful. Okay. So it's exciting for us. All right. Well, um, so, so I'm going to leave my opinions of that out of this and try to draw the differences between renovation, restoration, but more importantly, from my perspective, for the superintendent listeners, is, is the role that conditioning plays 
from a Parkland golf course like you do at Marion or Wingfoot that you did uh, to a Lynx golf course that you've done some redo of some Lynx holes, right, at Fisher Island, where it's a redo of an existing property that's a Lynx course. But a lot of your new places, especially the ones I've done with you, have been more sandbelt motivated, more motivated from, you know, <laughs> everything's cut uh, and you have green tight and then everything else. And then whatever's not grass is what was there. Can you begin to contrast sort of how you approach those different styles, knowing that, you know, Parkland golf courses are typically not considered firm and fast, whereas... Lynx golf courses are generally considered to be played on the ground more. How do you reconcile those things from a conditioning perspective, Jim? Well, I think, you know, when you point to the sand belt, the firm and fast, the Lynx style, you know, the stuff that we've done, but say either stream song or a hoopie, Olympic golf course, you know, Castle Stewart, uh, you know, all those. But it was the environment that, that a lot of those courses are set in. With a hoopie, you're on 200 feet of sand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to believe that an hour outside of Savannah, there's a sand, a sand belt, a sand ridge with, with that amount of sand. Uh, and, you know, Extreme Song, it really wasn't a lot of sand. It was more of the uh, import of the uh, mining byproduct, which is kind of the sand. Hmm. And uh, Castle Stewart, which you know, sits right on the, on the first in, in, in northern Scotland. But it's the environment that kind of dictates the, the, the job. But and the tight, the firm and fast conditions, I mean, that, that's environmental. I mean, that's, that's just, that makes the most sense. Okay. You know, why well, try to force a, uh, you know, a square peg into a round hole? Uh, and it's the same thing, you know, on a Parkland-style course. Okay. I mean, we can call Marion a Parkland-style golf course, but it, ha- it has to work. It has to fit into the environment. And we're huge fans on letting the time of year dictate what, you know, the golf course is all about and how it plays and how it feels. Uh, you know, the springtime golf courses uh, naturally in New York and Philadelphia are going to be a little bit wetter. Uh, they're going to be greener. There's nothing you can do about that. Mother Nature is providing that mm-hmm, for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the summertime, you know, you're going to go through those dry, hot spells and humidity and maybe some thunder showers, and it's going to be really firm and fast in the fall and things start to brown out a little mm-hmm. bit. Unfortunately, not as many people play golf in the fall. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably the best, uh, the best time best of year. To play. Probably the oh, best it's by far the best time to play. Yeah, the golf courses are in the best condition. Uh, it's the best time to play. Uh, but there's so many other things going on to compete with golf in the uh, in the fall. with football, college, and pro on the weekend. So that, that cuts into a lot. But okay. Okay. I mean, so wait a minute. Let me but let me let me yeah. let me I'm, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt yeah, and yeah. because I want to draw in on the conditioning, the intersection of conditioning and design. All right, because you just went through yeah. those seasons, and and let's just talk about playability wise. So you're saying. In the springtime, when it's green and lush, it's likely to be softer and maybe a little bit slower, depending on how they can get their greens and and surrounds uh, in the spring. And then in the summer, in places where we're talking about Philly, New York, that kind of stuff, that it can get a little firm and fast. And then even in the fall, you have even more control, so to speak, uh, over the drying, if you will. Uh, because the sun's going back down in the sky. So unlike the spring where you typically can be wet, the falls have been a lot longer and drier here since, you know, since President Trump listening, we might, you know, climate change is occurring. Now we've lost the five listeners that I had. Um, You know, we're getting these longer, drier falls uh, going in. So will you tell a superintendent, listen, mow higher, 
right? So the ball no. doesn't roll as no. roll as far. How do you design no. the course to just do that so that it works for both ways of designing it? Now I'm talking about you're locked in at Marion, right? I know I hear what you're saying when you have complete control, but when you're locked in at Marion, the equipment is different now than it was 50 or 100 sure. years ago. The ball, the yep. club, the skill level of the golf course, those sorts of things, the things we can do are so different. How do you reconcile those things with seasonal golf and designing a golf course that's still, you know, updatable, you know, current? Yeah, but well, I, mean, I mean, this is where we get into, Frank, what we talked about in the first segment is that it, this is where it becomes very important for the superintendent's involvement in the overall process. Uh, you know, from a design standpoint and how we place bunkers and location, that's, you know, that, that's the part where, you know, we don't worry too much about uh, the superintendent and, and their thought process. But when we get into the maintenance aspect of it, and I know design and maintenance do go together, but this is when we really have to listen and work with the superintendents uh, because it, it comes to a drainage issue as well. I mean, our philosophy is not to change mowing heights. We, we would never, ever recommend uh, doing that. Uh, and our ultimate goal is for a golf course to play firm and fast. And that's how we, when the design things now in, in the times of year, when it's a little bit, uh, wetter, then that's really where we got to get with the superintendent to say, okay, guys, this is the overall philosophy. This is what we're going to lay out from day one. This is what we're designing towards. This is where we need your input on drainage. This is where we need your input on grass varieties. This is where we need your input on, uh, you know, uh, irrigation, you know, that all comes into play and that's when we have to work hand in hand with one another. But, you know, it's, it's getting into, into the landing areas and making sure we get some good drain. It's not only surface drainage, but subsurface drainage, you know, and, and all those things that are very, very important, but we, we, we don't try to dictate anything with mowing heights. That's really where we let the superintendent take the challenge, take their knowledge and their experience and say, Hey guys, I know what you guys want. I've got the picture, and this mm-hmm. is the way we're going to go ahead and maintain it. Yeah. And then we turn it over to them. Mm-hmm. So they're just as important uh, in the process as we are. That's right. So as long as we all get that, that vocabulary down early on and understand what we're looking for as a final product, that's when we have to turn it over to those guys and, and work with them in the okay. construction end of things that's and right. just get everything right you know, set and give them all the tools that they need to be right. successful. Right. Well, let you know, me, no so, so let me get you, let me interrupt one more time here. There's something emerging now and, and I want to get your opinion on it. Uh, I think um, the data is clear. Uh, the, the information and performance of rolling large areas, um, both to impose some traffic firm the surface. We've got a lot of guys with, you know, been top dressing for a long time, or even if they haven't, we have a lot of ways of breaking through the soil profile rapidly, right? Airway devices that can make slits in the surface. So one of the things I'm starting to wonder more about and trying to get guys to play around with is the idea of rapidly rolling large areas. And since you're at Marion, one of the things that Matt, the previous superintendent, was working on extensively was the rolling of fairways down there. Now, that's something that still feels like it's not as commonplace as I'd like it. But it, when we can really start to get these things firm all the time, like we're getting the ability to do with our greens, right? I mean, again, you're going to work through that process with people, but this could dramatically change how far an already far ball 
is going to get hit. So let's leave the superintendents out of it for a minute. If they're able to do that and you're providing the golf course uh, to the average golfer who wants to hit it as far as they can, generally get a decent lie when they do it, how much are you having to consider that, boy, these places could even play shorter if they start doing that, playing on the ground more? Well, here's here's the problem with all that, Frank, uh, is that uh, it depends on what you're designing for. Are you designing for the everyday player or are you designing for the better player, which ends up being maybe 2% of the entire membership <laughs> at any given club? <laughs> because if you go ahead and you take fairways and you shave those babies down, you're mowing on, what, 350 or something? Yeah, you can, that low, easy. Yeah, and then you start rolling, okay? Yeah, sure, the average player's tee shot, the ball is going to go another, you know, 10 yards, 15 yards. But the problem is, is that average player does not have the ability to be able to get their club underneath that ball mm-hmm. because of the, of the thickness of the mat of the turf and the firmness of it. And then their second shot becomes that much harder. So we have to weigh, and everybody has to weigh, and, and you're advocating rolling. You need to weigh this in too, Frank, is that, you know, the game needs to be made easier mm-hmm. and quicker mm-hmm. and, and, and more fun. So if the ball is going 15 yards further, 10 yards further, that's great. Everybody's happy. I just crushed the crap out of a drive, and it mm-hmm. went 237 yards. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I'm excited. <laughs> well, you know what? Then I have a 150-yard shot in. I have a 7-iron, and I can't get my club underneath it, and I hit a worm burner 25 yards. Mm-hmm. Well, is that promoting the game? Are the, is the conditioning promoting you know, the game for the average higher handicap. So, so, so let me, let me press you. Well, line. this is great. Listen, that you, you, that's perfect. I mean, that is, I can't even believe you gave that perfect answer uh, to that setup question, Jim. That's why you wrote it down for me. That, 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 that's, that's why we're likely to have you back here on frankly speaking, is that smart <laughs> talk from guys like you. So let me, let me, I, pre- I, th- I thought it was, I was cheap. Cause yeah. I haven't got my check from the last time I was on. <laughs> so let me, let me press you a little bit. Further on this, do you think you see enough golf courses to give me an opinion on the following statement? Do you generally think superintendents are sometimes providing championship conditions for those 2% and aggravating the other 98% uh, more frequently? Or are you finding superintendents able to find that sweet spot? Because I do worry sometimes, and I saw it in Chicago too, Jim, where, you know, the membership said we want a firm, fast golf course, and then they gave them a firm, fast golf course, and the golf superintendent's spectacular at meeting what their need is, and now the bulk of the membership is complaining because of exactly what you just described. They can hit it further, but they can't get their club under it. Do you, do you see enough golf besides your projects to see what superintendents to pass judgment on how well they're calibrating their conditioning to the design and then the membership. Well, I mean, for the most part, I think the superintendents do a great job at getting the best out of any given facility that, that they're at. Perfect. You know, they do the absolute best that they can with the tools that they're given, the uh, environment that they're growing uh, everything on. Uh, and, uh, the problem with the superintendent is kind of similar to the golf pro. They're basically straddling a guillotine. 
you know, when you think about everything, I mean, you're right. You've got you've got people that are better players that, that feel the conditioning should be a certain way, and then you have the higher handicappers that feel the conditioning is being a certain way. And a lot of clubs, I mean, some clubs do, some clubs don't, but the majority of them do not. I mean, the guidelines aren't, aren't laid out, so a lot of the, the members don't really understand what the conditioning is set for. They huh. just feel that the superintendent has carte blanche to do whatever they want to do, and they do. Uh, to, to provide health, healthy turf, but that goes back into the committees and everybody involved that, that's giving directives, that's right. giving objectives. I mean, we chatted early on about our designs, new owners and, and, and renovations and new and projects, and it, you know, it comes down to objectives. You've got to be given a, a, a nice set of objectives as to what you're going to do. That's how you decide whether a design is a success or not. It's right. based on whether you achieve all the objectives, and the same thing has to be given for the superintendent. Right. The problem is that a lot of those guys are not given the objectives as to what is out there, and, and they go one way, uh, yeah. and then the next thing you know, there's people complaining it should be the other way. So it's it's really trial and error. Yeah. And the guys that have been at clubs the longest are, are probably the ones that are most successful because they know. Well, they, they live and breathe the golf course. So it is true, Jim, that they are straddling the guillotine, but let me suggest this to the superintendent listeners, right? Listening to Jim talk candidly about uh, his perception of what's going on. Maybe we shouldn't wait necessarily for the clientele and ownership to provide those maintenance standards. Maybe if we can get them to articulate the goals, come to an agreement on the goal, we can build maintenance standards to essentially work to provide those goals uh, all the time, and I've seen that done successfully. A good pal of mine, Brian Yule, up at Uplands Golf Club in, in Victoria, British Columbia, and many other superintendents, I'm sure now, have maintenance guidelines or maintenance standards. Jim, right to your point that here is what we're trying to do. If you have an issue with the fact that this place is playing 12-foot greens on you know soils with 8% moisture... Um, and you can't get your club under it, you better either talk to the people that who are setting these goals or, or go play somewhere else. Uh, your final comments before we go to break. Well, no, you're right about that, Frank. I mean, it, it has to be. And, and the superintendents, I mean, they, they, they just, it, it's working within that. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is the guys that are really good, they set those standards themselves. Uh, and then they work with the committees on, on green speeds and say, no, I can or cannot do it. They're, they're honest. They're open. They tell the guys, like, we can't do that or we can do it. Uh, and I think that, that's, that's the biggest thing. Is, and what we want to see is the superintendents working within the, the, the design philosophy, which is based on the objectives of the club and, and the renovation or new golf course. And then that's taken to the next level of the superintendent and the, and the maintenance end of things. But I think it's just you, from a superintendent standpoint is, you know, follow those objectives and, and move towards something and do the best you can. But if you can't give them what they want, then you have to be open and frank with the that's committees correct. and everybody that's involved and say, no, we can't do it. And here's the reasons why, yeah. you know, we can't get those green speeds to 13 because of agronomic or environmental issues, or we can't get those green speeds up because the contours in the greens that the architects originally designed for mm-hmm. are not based for those green speeds. And, and we've now lost four pinnable locations. All right, so, so let me hold you there, yeah. and Russ can be mad if he wants, <laughs> and we're going to have to get Russ on now. I'm going to have to find a time to chat with Tim now that we've thrown his name around so much. The, I want to get back to what you just said there, and, and that is when you have to change the design 
to address uh, modern needs, Jim. Let's leave it right there. You're listening to Jim Wagner here, principal at the Hans Design Group based in Malvern, Pennsylvania. I'm Frank Rossi based in Ithaca, New York. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network, and we'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, and this is a pretty fast-paced conversation on the intersection of design and maintenance. Jim Wagner from the Hans Design from Hans Design is with me at, live from Marion Golf Club during the construction down there, Jim. And man, you ended us up on a really nice segment there, uh, talking about sometimes you have to go in and make some adjustments because the green speeds that the golfers might want are changing the pinnable locations. And I saw that uh, in dramatic fashions during a recent visit to Interlochen. And I'm fairly sure Donald Ross was not in a good mood when he did the greens on, on that <laughs> golf course. So obviously we're seeing, as we talked about previously, the impact of a length and equipment on on design. But at the same time, I think I'm what I'm seeing you guys um, – Doing guys like Core Crenshaw that I just got to visit Sam Valley uh, a couple weeks ago and was with Rob, the superintendent. That place is in really good hands up there, uh, of course, with Mr. Kaiser and his son and, and Rob as a superintendent with the leadership uh, on the golf courses out there. Core Crenshaw just did a 17-hole uh, par three facility, 17 holes is just so cool that they called the sandbox. The T markers have these little trowels poked in them. They say guys are going out there in 12 sums and just using as a, as a way to sort of play like they are at top golf. It looks almost a little bit like outdoor top golf. So you've got these two directions, Jim, that design's going. One is to fix things for modern standards. The other is the real creativeness I'm seeing uh, with design. I'm going to let you pick. Which one do you want to talk about first? What were the choices? (laughs) (laughs) You're watching live as we figure out how to do radio here on Frankly Speaking. No, I, I mean the creativeness of of the uh, short golf courses, Frank. I mean that's. I mean, if we want to chat a little bit about that, I let's mean, go. We 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 did something similar. Actually, we've done two uh, two of those. We did the cradle at Pinehurst, uh, which is a nine hole loop uh, of all short holes, uh, basically out there with the pitching wedge. I mean, you could probably play the uh, the cradle with just a hybrid and keep the ball on the ground the whole entire time. And it's the same thing. Every time I drive by, because we're finishing up our work at Pinehurst Number 4, and every time I go by the cradle, there's 30, 40 people out there. Hmm. And the same thing. You, you see, you know, fivesome, sixsomes, you know, people walking around barefoot. You see, you know, grandparents with their grandkids. You see, you know, women and, and daughters and everybody out there just having fun. It's similar to what you see over in the U.K. 
You know, you go to a golf course on a Sunday in the UK, there's families out there, they're enjoying themselves. You know, it's part of the, the environment, it's part of the social makeup of families. Mm. And I think those short golf courses from a play standpoint and getting more people involved and in, in, in included, I mean, they're fabulous. Uh, it's great to see that. It's great to see people getting introduced to the game. It's great to see families and people out there having fun and enjoying themselves. And part of that is because you can be more creative. You know, who's to say you couldn't do uh, on you know a 15-hole loop of par three holes? You could do five punch bowls. Uh, I mean, there are some of the funnest things in, in golf, and, and most people don't see those on regular golf courses. Uh, and you can you can get so more so much more freedom and creativity and do cool interesting stuff that's really quirky. That's right. That uh, that most people don't see on, on their regular golf rounds, and most people don't want on their go- regular golf course. But they'll, they'll surely go out there and enjoy it on a par three golf course that takes two hours to play. Uh, but I think any any time you see that, I think it allows for the creativity, but it also gives us the motivation. When you know that what you're about to create in that in that environment, the part three environment, we'll call it, uh, that you're going to have different all levels of golfers and, and people out there more for fun than to go out and grind uh, around the golf out to you know be able to say that they shot a 99 right and plumb bobbing four footers. Uh, I think that uh, you know any any time uh, we would probably take the freedom and creativity over uh, the part three golf course, but. You can't make a living doing that, Frank, so we have to be realistic. Yes, but it is a place for you to be really creative, and you then want to bring that to your jobs. And I've, again, been fortunate to have a front-row seat to the way you guys work and the designs that you do and the able hands they're in all the time. I, I want to talk to you maybe at the – I mean, I think the other question as we wrap up, Jim, is I hate to end on a little lamenting note, but how do you, does it make you feel – when you've got to take a Ross or a, a Jones or a Tillinghast or whoever else might, Rainer, whoever else might have done a severe green, see the cupping space reduce so dramatically, hear from the membership that says we like them fast, you know, soften them out to give us more cupping space because, you know, it's not keeping up. How does that make you feel uh, from a creative perspective uh, for the design? It, it's, it's maybe a, um, maybe you're lamenting it, but maybe at the same time you feel like you're touching up a Mona Lisa. You want to do it very carefully. You, you, you definitely have to, Frank. I mean, it's a very, very hard thing to do because we have our own original designs out there, and there's a, there's a strict thought process on every green complex and a reason why you're doing that. And obviously those reasons change or, or the game changes, conditions change over time. So some of those areas, uh, you know, need to be looked at differently. And you're right. You, you're, you're trying to touch up a Mona Lisa in a lot of these cases. And you, you have to be very, very careful. And it's something that you really don't want to overdo. You know, you, you just want to kind of tiptoe around it and maybe, you know, add one pin placement. But you're not going to take a pin location that, you know, it was designed at a four or five for, uh, you know, four or 5% slope uh, at, uh, you know, for green speeds that are running like a seven or an eight, mm-hmm. you know, 80, 90 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and then turn it into a, a 1%. You know, that's, that's not a sympathetic, you know, redesign or change. That's not touching up a Mona Lisa. That's, that's making a wholesale change. That's right. You know, you have to be willing to say, listen, you know, we just want to take that 4% area right there that, just isn't quite big enough to recapture that pin location. And we want to take it down to three and a half or three and a quarter mm-hmm. uh, and not be hell bent on everything within a 20 foot, you know, uh, radius of a, of a pin has to be 
one and a half percent or less. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that does nobody any good whatsoever. So you just have to have a very, very light hand on these areas that you're looking to change. And, and you don't want to do all the entire green that way. You may just want to pick one pin location that was lost or That's maybe right. two of them. That's right. That are lost, and you just subtly tweak them. You know, and some of those changes, Frank, and we all see how guys airify. You know, more. I mean, things are more controlled now. But I remember deep tining 25 years ago, uh, and you know, you're deep tining and you're coming out with a cushman, and you're basically dumping sand on the green, and then everybody's brooming it in. And if maybe you dumped a little bit more, you know, every, it's not a perfect science uh, putting all that stuff down. You know, it's not an engineered, you know, one tenth of an inch of top dress over the entire green. Right. So, you know, even some top dressing causes contours to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, so some of those contours that maybe a pin location is lost is green speed, is original design, it's intent, it's all that. But, you know, some of that stuff does get changed with top dressing over time. Huh. That's interesting because I'm going to interrupt you as we start to wrap this up, Jim. Bring me bring a full circle, right? You're currently on site at the Marion Golf Club but without uh, revealing things that are uh, uncomfortable for people to know. When you have to do a place like Wingfoot or when you did when you do a Marion, if if you wouldn't mind, can you comment on how much is it that the surfaces just needed to be uh, sort of modernized for the modern climate and the modern player and and how much much of it is um, for what we're saying that that boy, it was just with the way we condition now, uh, some of these things don't make sense. How much of it was functional uh, like. You know, it's, we, it's it needs to be easier to maintain and get around and do the things you got to do on that small property. And how much of it was, well, we'd like this to host maybe another U.S. Open. Uh, what's it going to be like uh, for those guys? I mean, a majority of it is, Frank, is just that uh, you're, you're trying to get more excitement, more challenge back into the golf courses. Uh, you know, when you lose a back left pin placement, you know, at any club anywhere uh, in the country, that was against the end of a ha- edge of a hazard. And you can no longer go ahead and use that pin location, even from an everyday play standpoint and or championship play. Once you lose that, then you've taken away a lot of the challenge, the fun and interest of the golf course. You know, And the original design intent may be such that that's the best pin location on the, on the green. And you know, it, it's really up to, to part of our job and working with the committees is to try to find those areas that maybe have been lost over time. And, and tweak those. But a lot of it, and the majority of it, is just strictly from a play standpoint. That's right. right? The, the ease of maintenance really hasn't, hasn't done anything. And, you know, sometimes you need to expand greens. I mean, I, I know, for instance, at the Catanza Club out there in Marion, Massachusetts, that, you know, you could see the sand build up, uh, you know, the downwind side of the greens from when they were top dressed. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, there was a, uh, an edge around uh, all the greens that were downwind from all the top dressing that was put on. So, you know, things like that happen. It's more environmental. It's not really the, the superintendent or anybody, you know, trying to do anything of that nature. But things just happen in maintenance and not so much nowadays, but in the past, you know. Uh, yeah, they're getting so a lot more precise about piece. They're getting a lot more precise about what they're doing. And I I think, like you say, and throwing sand has been a very popular topic over the years in turf management. And in uh, particularly on the show, we've talked a lot about uh, sand top dressing. And I think we're coming to realize, Jim, as we wrap up today, that it has as much to do with how much grass is growing. A lot of times, uh, the more grass we grow where we don't need to grow it as much, uh, the more sand we got to fling uh, to dilute the organic matter. And, and you're right that, that it's possible. Some of those uh, 
periods of time when the sand has to get thrown uh, can impact conditioning. So I don't want to keep you another minute from driving Latshaw and his fellas down there, folks down there, crazy. Uh, that's uh, my role. That's my job. That's my job, Frank. <laughs> you in the caveman, so easy a caveman could do it. So it was the obvious uh, way for you to name your company. Jim, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for joining me. All right, Frank. All good. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Jim Wagner, Pants Design, on-site at Marion Golf Club. I'm Frank Rossi here in Ithaca, New York, and I'll be back with my final thoughts. Always a lively chat with Jim Wagner, the lead caveman, with an interesting perspective on the golf industry. He said something that struck me about what he observed with these small golf courses like the Cradle and the 17-hole sandbox at Sand Valley, the cradle at Pinehurst, of course. They're par threes. One of them was a 17-hole course. You could play it with one club, on the ground, fast and easy. He saw families doing it. It could be the green grass version of Top Golf. Now, I've had conversations this season, on Frankly Speaking, with leading thinkers, Steve Mona, uh, Jim Copenhaver. We talk about the intersection of the business of golf and maintenance of golf courses. And today... We talked to Jim Wagner about the intersection of design and maintenance of golf courses. And one of the things that came up uh, serendipitously is this small golf course issue that seems to relate to what Steve Mona is noticing in Top Golf that that's driving interest in hitting a regulation ball with a regulation club that we would define as the non-green grass channel of golf. Likens it to um, what Jim Copenhaver described that's happening with tennis around the development of sports like pickleball. By far the number one growing sport in the world. You travel to golf clubs, particularly in the Midwest, and you'll see the construction of pickleball courts. This looks to me like a small version of tennis. And so the, I don't hear the tennis people wondering if those people are going to play real tennis. They're happy they're playing racket sports. And I think at the end of the day, that's something that the industry should take heed of. But no matter what the future holds... Having that can-do mindset that Jim Wagner talked about in the beginning, for those of us responsible for conditioning, maintaining, and managing the land that makes up these recreational facilities, that Jim addressed that can-do attitude as the key to success. And we hope that you're able to do that in the process of the projects you may be endeavoring upon. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Frankly Speaking, Smart Talk from Leading Thinkers. Thinkers.